I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. We are taking back the controls, not to restore order, but to promote chaos. Unpredictable human creativity is not the problem, but the solution. Join the party, find the others, throw off the yoke of surveillance and manipulation, and celebrate the quirky, anomalous behaviors and approaches that make real people so much more than robots, algorithms, or consumer profiles. You are not a number, you are a human being. Playing for Team Human today, occult scholar and author Mitch Horowitz. There has to be a sort of morale in people's political philosophies to accomplish anything. I have to defer to Emerson. Nothing great was ever accomplished without enthusiasm. Mitch, the author of Occult America and One Simple Idea, will be talking with us about the shared histories of magic, capitalism, and America. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. There's two kinds of magic. There's magic tricks, like a Las Vegas stage show and sawing a woman in half or getting you to take weird cards. And then there's magic as occultism, the influence of the human mind on reality itself. So sure, they're related. The same cards with which you do card tricks can be the cards that someone uh, uses to do a tarot reading. And both kinds of magic, they leverage the brain to generate new states. So if you see a woman getting sawed in half, your brain opens. You think, huh, what's happened here? You've seen something, but you know it couldn't be. So it, it, forces you to reflect on paradox. It does throw you into a however mild and altered state. But then there's this other kind of magic, the, the occult, or what we might call real magic, which seeks to 
change the material world through this manipulation of immaterial forces. It's the actual hocus pocus, not the not the thing that the magician does on stage, but the idea that the hands are changing what's going on, or that you're seeing something in another realm. And while I've always been interested in this occult sort of magic, I've never known for sure if I believe in it. I prefer to take Robert Anton Wilson's approach to the supernatural or to anything, which is basically, maybe, I mean, why did so many people have similar alien abduction experiences? Is it because there's some part of the brain that just plays that tape for humans? Is it the media that spread this idea? Or are they actually being abducted by something? Are they going in a spaceship? Or is the spaceship the way our mind somehow puts together an interdimensional experience that's happening? Or why can some psychics pick out the names of your dead relatives? Is it because they've looked you up ahead of time and done research? Is it some trickery where they look at your lips to see the beginnings of letters while you're focusing on something? Or maybe they're not really communicating with the dead, but they've got ESP and they're communicating with your subconscious and your memory of that person? Or are they talking to dead people? Or why does the placebo effect work? I mean, is it just some uh, uh, state of mind? Or why does the placebo effect work even when people know that they're taking a placebo? You know, I don't know. I don't know any of this. And it's not that I don't care. But it's less important to me how to explain any of it than really how to leverage it, how to not only enjoy the liminal spaces that are opened through occult ritual or rainforest plants or meditation, but how to use it to promote a world, a worldview that recognizes that there's more going on here than meets the eye. There's something special happening here, something ineffable, something we can't express. We're not just little flesh robots. There's something happening. There's a network already at play long before any internet came along to imitate it. There's something about life and consciousness that's still ineffable, that's still inexplicable by simple material cause and effect Euclidean reality. And the existence of these subtle relationships, this quantum fabric of interconnectivity, is our best defense against the utilitarian metrics of capitalism, blind progress, and an entirely engineered future. They're all missing something. They're missing the ability to embrace these paradoxes for what they are, and to hold open the mystery, rather than rushing to false, if temporarily satisfying, conclusions. If we let those kinds of people build this world with that worldview, it will be missing us. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. My name's Neil Gornflow, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Frances Morlope, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Nikki Silvestri, and I'm on Team Human. My name's Aaron Barnes, and I'm on Team Human. I'm delighted to be sitting here with our guest today, Mitch Horowitz, a scholar and author 
of occult issues. He's the author of Occult America and One Simple Idea. One of the main ideas in your in your newest book is really the history of the idea that the mind is causative. Yes. You know, and you don't mean necessarily like Star Trek telekinesis, although I guess that would be the extreme version of it. But um, where does the where does the idea that the, the mind is causative, you know, where does it really come from for us? And I guess as a corollary, that's kind of cool, not kind of bad. I mean, it would be kind of cool. And is it true? Well, it's interesting. You know, you can identify that idea that thoughts are causative at many, many through many stages of history in many different forms of expression. People think they detect it in all kinds of places, from the Gospels to uh, the Hermetic literature, which was produced in Egypt in the uh, final stages of the Egyptian Empire. People think they find it in the Vedas and so on. And there are lots of historical parallels. But for us as modern people, that idea that thoughts are causative can be traced back largely to the work of an occult healer named Franz Anton Mesmer, who was very popular in the city of Paris in the years immediately preceding the French Revolution. And he's the guy that we got the word mesmerized from. That's it, mesmerized, which later became the term hypnotized, which we still use and practice today. And Mesmer believed that all human beings were animated by this invisible etheric fluid, which he called animal magnetism. But his brightest students and his most forward-looking students thought that the master was correct, that there's some unseen force behind human life, but they thought it wasn't an invisible fluid, it was the mind. And it was Mesmer's earliest students who grappled with the first ideas of the existence of a subconscious mind. And that like consciousness is some kind of an energy field and we're connected to yes. it. And... and they believe that this subconscious mind had influences over the body, over health, which of course it does. I mean, we see that in placebo studies that, that stretch well into our own day, some of which are, are much more exciting than those being done a hundred years ago. And Americans picked up on this idea. They took a leaf from this idea and they began to experiment with variants of mesmerism and formed a popular movement called mental healing, which flourished in New England in the mid to late 19th century. Mental healing was in a certain way a stepchild of mesmerism and mental healing had its own child, its own offspring. And that is what we popularly refer to today as the power of positive thinking or the law of attraction or the secret. And that is the modern family tree. Think it, be it, get it. Put Think a it. picture on the yeah. wall and yeah. the affirmation, I am not fat, I am not poor, Right. I have all the money I need, and then the money will come. And, you know, we have placebo studies today that tantalizingly creak the door back open again and again as to whether some of these people were onto things that we haven't yet fully come to terms well, with today. And they've today. done the studies. Bernie they've Siegel, the, studies. the cancer doctor, yep. the surgeon did the studies. If people do the guided visualizations the night before their surgery of the cancer being taken out, they get better results than if they don't. Yeah. And all of this is controversial, of course, because you have physicians who will point to opposing studies and say, you know, Bernie was wrong and this is wrong. And there's a psychologist at Harvard named Ellen Langer who has done some wonderful work loosely speaking in placebo studies where people are found to lose weight or demonstrate more youthful physical characteristics because of atmospheres they're immersed in or messaging that they're given. There are critics who will push back at these studies and say they're all wrong. But the truth is, 
any clinical study, whether it's a pharmaceutical study, if it's redone, if it's repeated, it's ghastly how little consistency there really is. So one has to take studies with a grain of salt to some degree, but you have to spread the salt around liberally. You have to spread the salt around evenly. We do have these studies. They are controversial, but every study, if it gets picked apart, could be made into an object of controversy. But we continue to be enticed by the idea that the mind has some sort of causative dimensions, and I think the placebo effect is well enough established as a fact for us to talk about it as such. So Mesmer and his earliest students, they had hold of something. They were onto something, and we're still grappling with that today. And isn't that, I mean, in some ways, just another way of saying American optimism? You know, it, it, all these ideas coalesced beautifully with the concept of American optimism. In some ways, American optimism is, politically speaking, an outgrowth of some of these ideas. I'm speaking of Ronald Reagan in this case. You know, Reagan himself grew up on many of these ideas that you can think it and be it, that nothing is impossible, which is a phrase that he specifically used, that man is able to achieve things that contradict all factual preconceptions. And he would speak about these things in his speeches and in his, in his early political writings. Every president since Ronald Reagan, with the exception of Donald Trump, every president since Ronald Reagan has had to sing tributes to the ethic of sunny tomorrows, to the ethic of it being morning right around the corner, the sun rising right around the mountain. And you know, Reagan was very influenced by these ideas, which grew out of some of these subcultures. And for at least a generation, he made it part of our political culture that to win in American politics, you had to be an optimist. For the first time since Reagan, we're seeing a reversal of that with our current president. Although, even in the current administration, there's this idea that reality is not something you observe or record, but yes. reality is something you make. You make, yes. And, you know, that's an idea that that Donald Trump himself imbibed as mother's milk, in a way, from his childhood. He grew up attending Marble Collegiate Church on the east side of Manhattan, which was presided over by Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote the book The Power of Positive Thinking, which was a Christian iteration of these very ideas that we're talking about. So little about. baby Donald is sitting there in the pews listening to Norman Vincent Peale say, you have the power in your mind to change the world in which you live. That's right. And Norman Vincent Peale performed two of Donald Trump's marriages. Uh, the Power of Positive Thinking is one of the very, very few books that Donald Trump speaks of having read. The influence is really clear. It's really there. So, you know, that I would say is the dark side of American optimism because Trump uses it in this exclusionary way, not to just manufacture facts that he wants, but to get rid of facts that he doesn't want. Anything that's uncomfortable gets cut away, gets whitewashed out of whatever the picture is in his mind. I mean, I've always found something more uh, almost uh, pro-human and pro-social mm -hmm. in the optimistic yeah. worldview. Yeah. You know, it's the kind of view that, that Aleister Crowley had, that Timothy Leary had, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that even Robert Anton Wilson had to yes. some extent. And because it's, it's, we're human beings working together to bring what we want, as opposed to those darn pessimistic Marxist wonks. So we're yeah. just talking yeah. about, yes, there's a baby starving over there, but come on, let's fix it. Right. Well, you know, my message to the Marxist wonks, you know, who I count among my friends is that 
they could actually use a dose of this ethic rather than turning up their noses at it, rather than saying that that's the domain of, of, of shallow people and dumbbells and people who don't appropriately grapple with reality. There has to be a sort of morale in people's political philosophies to accomplish anything. I mean, I have to defer to Emerson. Nothing great was ever accomplished without enthusiasm. Would anybody really like to question that? Because if you're not imbibing enthusiasm, you're imbibing fanaticism. You know, the affirmative choice of something, the affirmative choice of a possibility is actually something that I think the left wing could use and that I think actually was on display with Bernie Sanders and some of the people around him. Don't reject that. Don't run away from that. Don't dismiss that. Ask yourself, can I use that? Because the other side is certainly using it and they're using it in an exclusionary way. Right. I mean, it feels like the left and, you know, those who mean well that we've adopted, even the humanities, we've adopted such a scientific uh, proof model yeah. of everything we do that we we don't feel entitled to say, I want to live in a moral universe. Yes, yes. As if morals and morale are somehow anathema to the appropriate administration of social justice. You know, among the early generation of left-wing agitators in America, Eugene V. Debs, Norman Thomas, I would include Michael Harrington in this, who was a professor here at Queens College for many years, there was an indelible optimism. It permeated their speeches, their articles. It didn't compromise their intellectual seriousness. They felt a sense that they were promulgating not just a set of policies, but a moral imperative that could be celebrated. There was something celebratory in them. I would say to the left, retake that celebratory tone because it's been abandoned. It doesn't exist anymore. Trump could talk about the good old days where he sat listening to Norman Vincent Peale, but he's not an optimist. He excludes people. He humiliates people. He uses the insult as his primary political weapon. So pick up the celebratory. Make that at the center of your message. I think Bernie Sanders did that to a certain degree to great effect. But People tease us when we celebrate. Yes. I mean, I think about it's supposed Occupy, to be unserious. Yeah, right. Yeah. And they think, oh, look at them drumming, and oh, they're getting <laughs> laid, and they're saying, it's like, well, first, what's wrong with getting laid while you're protesting? It seems appropriate. <laughs> you were born on the yeah. right, uh, uh, <laughs> but when I was young, exactly. Yeah. But right. there's there is it's as if, uh, as as if that we're afraid of the momentum that that creates. Almost that if you're having fun, you may be a fascist. You're going to go down this dark place. You've got to keep checking yourself against the metrics for your uh, delivering success. Well, And there's also this element that intellectual seriousness resides on the dark side, in effect. You know, um, uh, Bertolt, the, the, you know, the, the, the dramas of, of Bertolt Brecht or Samuel Beckett are supposed to be this existential touchstone that explain to us the futility and the hopelessness with which serious people are supposed to view the world. And I challenge that. Of course, we can point to catastrophic and horrible events of the 20th century. We can point to those today. But I don't see where the imperative arises to identify those things as definitive. Are they definitive? I think that needs to be argued for. I think that needs to be defended. I don't think that should just be bought and accepted. And too often, I think the cultural class in America has bought into the idea that futility and hopelessness as expressed in certain works of modern art, plays, drama, is 
in itself the kind of default position that serious people take. I think that has to be revisited. Right. So then we end up going, say, against Brecht, against Marat. Yes. And we move towards Artaud. We move towards <laughs> Marquis de Sade. You know, we move towards Aleister Crowley. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're dark in their own ways, but there's a celebratory, weird... Uh, there's a, a moistness. There's yes. a, a humanity to it. And we can move toward William James, and we can move toward Ralph Waldo Emerson, and we can move toward Thoreau, and we can move toward Colin Wilson, the English writer who recently died. You have these deeply serious voices who did believe that life ultimately tended toward the generative. Life ultimately tended toward solutions. Life ultimately tended toward possibility. That was their intellectual view. You'll find that in William James. That's the direction toward which I bend. So that we no longer have to call, you know, being Pollyannish doesn't have to be a bad thing. That's, you know, or at least the idea that you bend toward possibility doesn't have to seem like a symptom of shallowness, doesn't have to seem like it bespeaks intellectual weakness. And there isn't a need for that. There isn't a need for that because you can find an extraordinary grappling with the questions of life and tragedy and suffering, and you can find a theology of suffering in the transcendentalists, for example, but they didn't believe that life naturally bended in that direction. So if we are opening our minds to the possibility that there's more going on here that meets them that you know that meets the eye yeah then uh is there something more going on here in other words <laughs> are humans defined by something i i've been you know i'm working on a book where i'm really trying to make it very clear that humans are not replaceable by silicon chips mm-hmm. you know that we can't upload consciousness you don't want to do that there's stuff going on that we don't yet know about mm-hmm. in a in a centimeter of sand mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. less in the in the human organism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but uh, there i feel like human beings are special mm-hmm. that there's something weird going on, whether it's in the way our nervous system works and projects this holographic reality or in the fact that we're connected in ways that we can't really figure out. Yes. Um, where, what do you feel is sort of for you the most compelling evidence that, that the amazing Randy is wrong, mm, yeah. that we're not just in a, in a physics reality, but in something else? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And the amazing Randy is wrong, actually. And our culture will eventually come around to that because truth is indelible. What he's wrong about is the fact that he has misrepresented and failed to adequately understand and communicate to other people the nature of some very rigorous, some very... Um, Uh, clinically well-documented and, in fact, repeated. You're often told they're not repeated, but, in fact, repeated um, psychical experiments that have demonstrated some kind of anomalous transfer of information in laboratory settings. And for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, Amazing Randy, he's a magician who uh, put out, like, a million-dollar prize for anyone who could do any real magic, anything real. Right. And he did this in Las Vegas and he did it as a stage show and remarkably nothing happened. Uh, Randy is to skepticism what Senator Joe McCarthy was to anti-communism. He took what may be a, a, a defensible cause, an arguably necessary cause, and he made it into a show that purposely exclu- excluded all subtle dimensions. The subtlest uh, is this. We have decades of laboratory experiments that were conducted at Duke and other places that have been repeated, contrary to what Randy and his cohort will repeatedly say again and again, that demonstrate 
uh, above average hits on a deck of cards or some kind of uh, guessing game that over tens of thousands of trials repeatedly produces some sort of minor statistical blip that violates the laws of average. Well, a law to be a law has to be consistent. And if we find inconsistency, it begs a question. It doesn't prove the existence of ESP, but it warrants continued research. There isn't much continued research going on in this area, but I cite it as just one to suggest that mind is not just an epiphenomenon of the gray matter of the brain, but there may be some sort of non-physical anomalous transfer of information that can be documented. We don't have a theory for why this is happening, but we do have statistical evidence that's tantalizing. That's just one thing among many others. We haven't even gotten into placebo research that can suggest that the mind wields forces, possibly, that we don't understand and hasn't been replicated in any artificial way through silicon chips, through computers. And that is case one in why we can't jump to the conclusion that consciousness is mechanically replaceable. Right. It's not a uh, it's not a computational phenomenon. It doesn't even work like a computational phenomenon, right. much less be one. And if I give you a placebo, even transparently, as has been done recently at Harvard Medical School in a study there, and tell you this will make you feel better, and you or some fraction of people say, wow, it did make me feel better. Why is that? Well, why indeed? Why indeed? You know, what's going on there? Is it the release of endorphins? Well, maybe. You know, is there something else going on? Why should it be going on at all? Why should it be going on if the pill is transparently administered, if it's an honest placebo? I mean, these are questions about consciousness that open up incredible vistas that we haven't even begun to explore yet. So we're getting grossly ahead of ourselves to suggest, well, you know, replace me with a computerized Tonka toy and everything will be fine. You know, we don't know what consciousness is. You can't replace what you can't define. But it feels as if our culture is saying something very disparaging about what it means to be human. Yes. Yes. It's this cultural attitude that I think exists within Silicon Valley. I mean, they are the kind of technological victors of our time and the Silicon Valley engineering culture has done remarkable things. There are reasons to honor them. There are reasons to respect them. But to elevate them to a kind of modern priesthood that's going to save us is a gross mistake because save us from what, you know, becomes the question. When we don't understand human consciousness, when we can't define or wrap our arms around what the idea of human awareness really is when we don't even have a consensus point of view of what's going on, for example, in a placebo experiment that might be a hundred years old at this point. What hubris, what hubris to suggest that, you know, binary code can replace consciousness. We know what binary code is. We don't know what consciousness is. I know. It's interesting. I, I, I haven't found the direct connections yet, but, you know, there was a, a form of, of Gnosticism, uh, Soviet Gnosticism, mm -hmm. that was part of the uh, two-track diplomacy exchange that they did at Esalen. Mm -hmm. you know, yes, so you see the right. sort of Gnostic yeah. Soviets, I forgot what it was called, <laughs> their, their, the Gnostic Soviet religion. Um, cosmism? Cosmism, yeah. right. So Cosmism and dolphins. Yeah, yeah. And Esalen, <laughs> right? <laughs> and the early, uh, early Silicon Valley people. Yeah, they're yeah. absorbing a kind of new age 
a new age philosophy that yeah. wants to leave the human body behind. Yeah, yeah. And rise from the chrysalis of matter into right. some other dimensional state. Right. And then computers become the answer. So Ray yeah. Kurzweil gets to sit in in his in in the palace of Google and upload his mind to the great processors that they're building for him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, do you is this a form of gnosticism? Uh, it's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, you're correct that there was this kind of secular new age philosophy that ran through certain edges of 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 soviet intelligentsia culture cosmism was one name for it and as you've aptly described the belief of these people these these sort of secular new age philosophies within uh, philosophers within the soviet union was that branching out to the stars and translating consciousness to computers would provide a kind of technological transcendence and it could be called gnosticism in the sense that they believed that through technology you could connect man with the cosmic. They lived and functioned within a political and intellectual culture that was officially atheist. And the same thing exists within China today, for example. I was working with a translator on my book, One Simple Idea, and you know, I would make references to things like soul or spirituality, and she would actually have a very, very hard time knowing what I was talking about growing up in Shanghai, as she did, without these common reference points that come to us so easily in the West. But she grew up in a world that was, at least in that time and place, officially atheist. So for the Soviets, some of their philosophers wanted to talk about this idea of a cosmic connection. They couldn't rely upon theistic language. They didn't want to rely upon theistic language. So they opted for the language of technology. And I think that did become a kind of secular Gnosticism, a secular mysticism. And it's exactly what you see in Silicon Valley today, although with an added dose of hubris, because they have been so successful from a consumer perspective that the rest of us are all apt to look to them and say, save us, you know, tell us how we can rescue the environment, how we can rescue our downtowns, how we can get along better together. And that's a dangerous gambit. That's a dangerous gambit because some of these engineers, while they're extraordinary at dealing with issues of coding, if you speak to them person to person, they'll tell you that they believed things or do believe things that are demonstrably false, like that the nation of Iraq was harboring weapons of mass destruction. So, you know, the second Gulf War was just a grim necessity. Too bad. Well, they were wrong about that. Peter Thiel in particular believes this. He was wrong about that. He acknowledges today he was wrong about that. But however uh, uh, adept he may be as an entrepreneur, if he was admittedly wrong about so grave and pivotal and important a reason for taking this nation into war and the, the heartache and the destruction left in its wake, why should I be asking him political or social questions? You know, well, you founded PayPal. Congratulations. Well, exactly. Plus, what does it's that like say? PayPal is not a complicated thing. It's a simple <laughs> thing. It's a credit card in your phone. I mean, it's a it's a file. It's a yeah, little encryption. Right, right. You know, it's, it's, what? Right. You're the Friendster or right. Facebook? Right. This is not, you know, you, you, it, it, uh, Friendster, the whole of Facebook is not as complicated as an earthworm. Right, you right, know? right. And make an that's earthworm true. for me. And, and that's know? a good point. Right. Make an earthworm for me. Make an earthworm. Make a single cell organism for me, a self-perpetuating single cell organism that can produce offspring. Right. Before you're, you're you right. want me to upload my consciousness right. to a freaking Intel 
386. No, no that, that, you know? that, that's beautifully put. A single cell organism is more complicated than Facebook. And that's, that's, that's the point. Why should we be turning to these wizards, you know, with ultimate questions of life? Right. Because yeah. the person saying that a single cell organism is more complicated than Facebook has one ten billionth less of the money of That's the true. guy, <laughs> guy who and you're Facebook. right and you're right and you know and and you're absolutely correct and we are entranced by that and we are entranced by that and there may be reasons to be entranced by that but the fact is and that's the magic you know that's, that's the magic. closer to magic than what we're talking about yeah, yeah. that this guy's got all this money he's got all these symbols these that's units right. oh look that's at right. his bank the bank says he has this Ooh. the bank says right uh howard hughes uh, the reclusive billionaire believed a lot of strange things too you know would yeah. one want to like go to Howard Hughes for policy suggestions. You know, I was reading a piece in the New York Times Magazine several years ago about how a group of tech wizards got together for a conference in Las Vegas, and they wanted to map out a blueprint for how to make Las Vegas into a livable city. Now, the article was written in these terms of wonder that these whiz kids are going to teach us how to revive downtown areas and make them livable. No follow-up, not a word about this was ever heard from again. But as I was reading this, I thought... Have these tech wizards ever taught in an inner city classroom, manned a desk at night at a police station, uh, driven an ambulance, done any of the things that you need to do, written a parking ticket that you need to do to run a city and deal with human complexity? And I thought, why are we turning to these folks who, you know, probably were bust in in an air-conditioned luxury liner are going to be bust out as soon as the conference is over and pay for services that other people in Las Vegas who live off the strip have to work to support. Why are we turning to them for policy solutions? And of course, as with all of these things, the article I'm describing was written five years ago. If you've heard of it, you've never heard of a follow-up. It just comes and goes like a soap bubble. You know, these are you know, I hate to put it in such crude terms, but it's this kind of masturbatory ritual where we go to people like a Peter Thiel or like Mark Zuckerberg and we say, you know, because you have created this really remarkable and revenue generating toy, tell us how to fix everything else. And uh, will it work? Well, I never heard anything else about the Las Vegas experiment. Right. And I mean, like me, you've got, you know, great questions about techno solutionism and the idea of some computer program or platform, even well programmed, solving what are essentially social human yeah. problems. Um, but what then is the way what do you, what do you find is sort of one of our, our easiest access points to affirming uh humanity in the face of all of this uh, disparaging uh, blather about human beings being the problem rather than the solution. I think one of the easiest access points and one that has a radical potential that we've underestimated and needs to be reasserted, frankly, is civility. It is the resource that's in the absolute shortest supply these days. The language of the internet, the language of social media is sarcasm, insult, caustic behavior. Trump is its master, and it's why he's running things. Civility is the most radical thing somebody can do individually and immediately to create a countercurrent to the tendencies in our culture.
I love that because, you know, you would one would expect you to say, oh, well, LSD, <laughs> right. ayahuasca, <laughs> right. a Zen meditation. Exactly, or, exactly, exactly. And, tantric sex. You uh, know, there's lots of things that I participate in that, you know, take a leaf <laughs> from those schools. And I'm interested in transcendental meditation and I'm interested in hermetic philosophy, which my children tell me is dead. And I'm interested in ESP research and all kinds of things. But the most radical departure that you can take from the dominant culture, especially on social media, is radical civility. It is almost never done. So I would issue the challenge to somebody out there listening. Why don't you be the one who does it right now? And to the ones that that it's hardest to do it to, which are the ones who are being the least civil. It's very, very you. hard to do it. It's very hard to do it. And uh, one will try and one will fail. And it's a noble thing to fail at. When you fail, just try it again. Try it again. You know, what a, what a noble thing to fail at. And where do you find your your inspiration and uh, what helps you uh, maintain your stamina, uh, you know, because really what, as I see you, I mean, I know officially, you know, you're an occult scholar and publisher and writer and historian, but what I see you as is a, a defender of humanity against the forces of death. You know, (laughs) it's really the easiest way to put it. Um, So how do you, how do you, I mean, I try, I, I, contact with other people, good conversations has yeah. really been the best healing thing for me. But I mean, where do you look? Where, where are your where are your sites of inspiration? Where are the people gathering? Where's the conspiracy alive? Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't found a permanent community or school of thought or congregation that I'm part of. I think I enter conversations like this one and, and kind of weave in and out where there's a genuine question present. I mean, among people who hold a genuine question, that's where I think I find whatever inspiration I'm able to, and that's where I find whatever community or constituency that I'm part of. I love more than anything when mainstream people say, hey, you know, I'm willing to take a certain look, a second look at ideas that have been dismissed, religious ideas, ethical ideas, occult ideas, who can be convinced, gee, maybe there's a little something there that I haven't paid attention to. I mean, I, I think I decided long ago, I'd rather be the, 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 the normal guy. How shall I put this? I'd rather be the weird guy at Reader's Digest than be the normal guy at the Village Voice, the sadly now defunct Village Voice. Because when you seek to be kind of the normal guy in a countercultural setting, you're always putting brakes on people. You're always telling people, stop, slow down. You always are seen as the person who's placing limits. But when you're decidedly the weird guy in a mainstream setting, you're surprised at how many people there are who are actually willing to take a second look at some of the very things that you were just referencing. And I get a lot of joy out of that. I also have a lot of readers who are part of a really slender, wonderful sliver of the New Age culture who are willing to think more seriously and more carefully about our history, our methods, where do we come from, what works, what doesn't work, who are willing to think more critically. So the people I grok to are kind of a sliver of mainstream folk who are willing to take a second look at things that mainstream folk are not really supposed to take seriously, and a sliver of New Age folk who might participate in some of these spiritual methodologies but have serious questions about them. So the the sliver of those two cultures are is what turns me on. That's my constituency. That's where I come from. 
as a, uh, a member of Team Human uh, <laughs> and a historian who's looked at a lot of uh, critical periods that our little civilization has gone through, um, are you worried or hopeful right now about our ability to kind of keep our true humanity uh, going through this uh, little storm? That's That's an interesting question. And right now... My mindset and my mood as to whether I'm hopeful or in a darkened state, I think comes from my own sense of self, my own ability or inability to successfully experiment with spiritual ideas and make an honest judgment call as to whether they actually have any impact on my life make me a better person to be around, make me better in my conduct, make me more complete in my human interactions, make me a more attractive and appealing person in the deepest sense to other people. I experiment with all kinds of ideas, hermetic ideas, transcendental ideas, ideas that come out of various aspects of the spiritual culture. Am I wasting my time? Do they make any difference? Would my wife say they make any difference? If the answer to those questions is yes, then I'm hopeful. If the answer to those questions is no, then that's cause for darkness. And I'm really in the midst of that question right now because I'm working very, very hard with personal, spiritual, and ethical ideas. And where will that hard work go? Will it pay off? Will it amount to anything? That's going to de determine how I feel about the, the question that you're posing. Well, it's if, if it's of uh, any value to you, uh, it's affected me. Well, <laughs> and I think uh, a lot of the people listening to us right now. So at least take that. <laughs> take yes. that to bed with you. I'll, <laughs> it goes in the logbook. <laughs> But thank you, Mitch Horowitz, for uh, being on Team Human and uh, sharing your hope and wisdom with the rest of us. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been on Team Human with our guest today, author Mitch Horowitz. He wrote the books Occult America and One Simple Idea. We'll be back in the basement media squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.